You're listening to a Tudor Institute Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor Institute Ireland interdisciplinary conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Coleman Dennehy from University College Dublin and University College London. His paper was entitled Lawyers in Parliament, examining legal counsel on Irish cases at the Westminster Parliament. Well, first things first, I need to acknowledge and express my gratitude to the Irish Research Council for the, the, um, the support they're giving to me on the, the research project. Um, the project itself, as it stands, is an attempt to better understand the process of appeal in early modern Ireland and on cases that go to England, specifically cases that go to the House of Lords, both in Dublin and at Westminster so although it's terribly interesting, I will not be considering the pamphlets, the pamphlet war and other aspects of what becomes known as colonial nationalism in the 1690s and onwards. I've always thought it more interesting when it comes to both law and parliament that the results should always be more important than the rhetoric. The rhetoric of parliament is important, but it tends to inform um, political history rather than administrative or legal history. My project, therefore, is much more an administrative and legal history of appeals jurisdiction that will occasionally touch on disputes between the parliaments of England, Britain after 1707, and Ireland, rather than a political history of dispute and proto-nationalism that uses appellate jurisdiction to illustrate. For whilst most will have heard of the politically contentious cases such as uh, the London Dairy Society v. the Bishop of Derry, Ward v. Mead, and of course Ainsley v. Sherlock, um, it's important to remember that Irish cases had been heard without contention as to who, if anyone, had judicial supremacy both before and after these cases of the 1690s and beyond, for instance, in Sherlock in 1718. The project goes back as far as the early 17th century, and it's interesting to note that the Irish House of Lords was hearing cases, uh, appeal cases, from at least 1613. We definitely have a writ of appeal, and I'm nearly certain we have a chance for appeal, or a writ of error, and I'm nearly sure that we have a chance for appeal as well. Um, and indeed, there's a suspicion that may never have lost its judicial functions from the medieval period in the way that the English Upper House had. And when this was established, re-established with vigour from the early 1620s afterwards, onwards uh, in Westminster, one of the first cases to be heard indeed concerned an estate in County Wexford, Lord Stafford v Macdonough. So I'm particularly interested in how the process works, the rate of cases that flow into Westminster or indeed into the Irish House of Lords, the success rates for the litigants, the gender, social status, marital status... Uh, the religious and ethnic identity of the litigants and the changing nature of the bureaucracy of this judicial side of Parliament's work. And of course, for the purposes of today's paper, I'm interested in the council that was appointed to represent litigants uh, where the dispute concerned matters in Ireland. Mostly it's estates, as you can imagine, but occasionally other things pop up. I start in the early 1600s simply because the Irish House of Lords journals um, exist in only partial form for 1613 in the form of an index which is very useful and afterwards 1634 onwards we have a very good journal. Um, for England 
the early 1600s because they, they, they sort of reinvent their idea of their judicial role, which had been largely dormant throughout the Tudor period and indeed for parts of the late medieval period as well. Um, so how do we identify the barristers um, in this case? Um, uh, these are the, um, the printed cases that begin from the 1690s in, in, uh, in Westminster. If you bring a case to the House of Lords in Westminster, um, it's very important that you get the basic ideas of your case printed up. Usually in four pages, these cases tend to be. They become uh, more bulky as time goes on. You know that the paper trail is always um, enlarged to a great extent, where you just simply give the history of the case up to the point that it arrives in Parliament a lot of the points that you think are specifically useful in supporting your side of the case. And then very importantly, at the end, we always get, uh, um, in the initial days, it's signed, but obviously printed as the name of the uh, council that's representing you in Parliament. And it's absolutely uh, essential that this is put on standing order number 59 in the English House of Lords demands that council be signed on to the case in advance um, uh, before it can be accepted. So we have a full list of all of the cases that pop through. So for my cases, these start to be printed around the later restoration period, but they become really standard issue from the 60, early 1690s onwards. So for these periods, I can identify in virtually all cases the uh, council that represents um, uh, the, the, the Irish litigants who are going over to, to Westminster to, um, to, to, to bring forth an appeal, like I say, usually for their estate. Um, so much as much um, much the same as with le the legal industry today. Um, once the process is up and running, like I say, from the 1690s, council was a relatively small coterie of lawyers pleading at the bar by the end of my period. The end of my period for this study is 1730. So obviously, I'm I'm stretching a wee bit the, what what could legitimately be described as as Tudor and Stuart Ireland. Um, now, this to me can be somewhat surprising, considering that there must have been hundreds of council in London and Britain, perhaps even thousands at the time. Um, uh, yet there's a relatively small group of highly experienced and presumably eminent lawyers that hoover up all the briefs around the House of Lords. It is possible that only some lawyers specialise in appellate law, um, but the fact that we know that, that, that um, there will be some that show up once or twice a year make this very unlikely, particularly in the 1690s and the very early 1700s. There's lots of figures who, uh, what I describe as non-prolific barristers, who show up in just one Irish case, all of these guys, two cases, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine... Um, the occasionally some will seem will be familiar to you. Um, this guy here, the Irish MP, um, who dies in 1707-1708. I think he'd be an uncle of, of Middleton. Um, there's another St. John Broderick in the side. And then for the case of Blake v. Blake, which is, is obviously a West of Ireland case. But otherwise, most of these characters tend to be, um, tends to be um, English barristers. Um, in the early days, as in particular, you'll see those pleading at the bar were far more numerous, but also that there were far more barristers who pleaded just once, twice, three times, or something like that. Um, but later on, once we get up to uh, in, into the into the 17-teens or 1720s, there's a, a smaller group that become far more prolific. Um, I should have their names popping up there now. And for example, all the prominent names in these ones can be traced. Um, two impressive careers at the bar and sometimes beyond. For example, in the last four years of the cases in my project, 1726 to 1730 included, uh, there are 33 Irish cases that are heard, of which there is almost always two counsel representing either side, and the following counsel do, uh, dominated in, in a very substantial way. Sir Philip York, uh, 
here is counsel on 28 of these cases, 26 for Charles Talbot. Uh, they always work together, or not always, but frequently work together. Thomas Lutwich, 27 cases, and 14 go to Nicholas Fazar Carley, um, tending to dominate um, uh, uh, quite a bit. Now, although Talbot and York regularly work together on cases in the Lords, most famously on the Talbot-York opinion, which is a very important um, legal opinion given on the role of slavery in English law and essentially perpetuates the, uh, the convention of, of, um, of slavery well into the, into the 19th century. They did on occasion oppose each other with either Lutwich or Fraser Carley as their partner. Now, I'm still working through the stats for who represents who, where I can identify who the litigants are and, and who they're employing, and if there's a connection between things like that, um, where it's possible to identify things like religion or politics. But at this stage, it would appear to be the case that the barristers will simply take a case without regard to uh, religion or generally to politics as well. This would certainly mirror the situation in Ireland uh, up until Catholics are banned from the profession in that kingdom under the penal laws. For instance, a study of chancery legal representation from 1660 as performed by Hazel Maynard would strongly suggest, very convincingly suggest, that religion or political outlook would rarely be a, uh, would do a barrister out of a brief and clients simply wanted the best representation that they could afford regardless of the religion of the barrister. Um, so if we look at these cases, at these barristers, you're looking at Lutwich, um, it's a firm Tory, uh, but never holds high office for obvious reasons, you know, after the, the, the Whigs take over. But he is a high flyer, he's an MP and QC. York later becomes uh, the Earl of Hardwick. If your historical interests go well into the 18th century, you'll know that he becomes um, a King's Council, an MP, Privy Councillor and a Lord Chancellor from 1737 to 1756. Same too with Charles Talbot, Solicitor General to the Prince of Wales, an MP, Solicitor General. Rob Raymond... An apostate from the Tories over to the Whigs, MP, uh, Solicitor General, Attorney General, Chief Justice of the King's Bench, Commissioner of the Privy Seal, given a peerage later on, you know. Um, one name that should stand out, Constantine Philip Phipps. Um, John, I think you did his DIB entry, actually. He is one man who does have a lot of experience in Ireland. He comes over for about, I think, three or four years, gets up to all kinds of mischief with the, the Corporation of Dublin and representation and... Um, various plays that are performed, and he, he, he's 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 um, he's run out of town pretty quickly once 1714 comes along. Um, but but he's a Lord Chancellor in Ireland, so we do presumably assume he knows quite a bit about Irish law. But then maybe not all the time. We need uh, some Lord Chancellors who, who get appointed without anything at all. Boyle, for example, in the 1660s, has no. Uh, he's got an informal legal background, you know, through his work, but he's never formally legal tra- legally trained as far as far as we might know. So amongst the pleading barristers, there are very few that are Irish. The only one that would appear to stand out is St. John Broderick, or St. John Broderick, if you prefer. Most likely the St. John Broderick that dies in 1707 or 1708, judging by the fact that he disappears from the sources after that point. He's got a nice little trade in this going, and then cut-off point is there. So I'm quite certain that's because he's, he's, uh, he's expired. There is an occasional name, such as Dylan or French, that might suggest an Irish legal family, but I'm not yet finished with that, uh, with that end of my research. In any case, they feature just the once. Uh, other than that, it's for the most part English lawyers pleading in Irish causes, uh, with the exception of William Hamilton down the very end there. It's the first Scot who's entitled to plead both in Edinburgh at the Courts of Sessions and also in Westminster uh, Parliament thereafter, if it is indeed correct to speak of a, a border after 1707. And this makes sense to a large extent. You know, Why would you bring an Irish barrister over? Is he going to do you any favours at court with a strong Irish accent to Westminster? Maybe, maybe not. We've got all the, the additional expense of bringing somebody over from Dublin to London, 
putting them up for a while because there's always the chance that your case will get delayed. It, there's always strong delaying tactics and it's made all the easier with the IRC involved. So we can't find our witness, we can't bring somebody over, we can't get the documentation out of the Irish Court of Chancery, the winds are bad, the seas are rough, it's going to take long. Just dragging out a case as long as you can, it's, it's a time-honoured uh, um, uh, uh, um, move by, by lawyers to just drag out the issue as long as you can. Hopefully the other litigant will die in the meantime and the case will just founder for whatever way. So you get the professionals who are in London year in, year out, they're working consistently on these sorts of cases. These are only their Irish cases, by the way. Keep in mind, they're also working Scottish cases after 1707 and also English cases all the time as well, very prolific in their work. Now, it's clear looking to the work of John Bergen and also Craig Bailey and also Owen Kinsler, uh, the two other guys speaking today, that there are Irish attorneys, agents or lawyers, I'm never quite sure what the best word to use, I think agent is probably a good one to go with for the moment, who are supporting these cases and acting as agents for the litigants. So there's certainly input from Irish lawyers or at least people knowledgeable in the law in London, but they are not for the most part pleading at the bar. It makes sense in many respects that the Irish litigants would have somebody in London that they could rely on to promote their, the case and to push it through the various stages before it's actually formally heard. So you initiate your, your case with a petition saying we'd like to have our, our case uh, heard in the highest court of the land. Then the, the other litigants, the opposing side, the respondents have to be informed. They have to come over, get themselves set up. So there's a whole, uh, a whole series of stages of bureaucracy that have to be put through before the case is actually formally heard. So if you have somebody in London looking after your interests who knows the Irish setup knows the Irish law reasonably well, knows the right people in London to give the brief to, uh, so it makes sense that they, are, that they are going quite well. So thus a figure such as David Duan, an Irish Catholic lawyer based permanently in London, acted as a legal agent, organising the printing of the cases, which I had up earlier, possibly recommending or even formally employing the barristers and giving them the brief to the more senior counsel, and paying the recognisance and having the cases printed up. The same goes for others, such as his younger brother, Matthew Duan, Edmund Malone, Dennis Maloney, and Peter Sexton. Now, many of these figures kept chambers in or around the inns of court, up at Holborn and up beyond, um, and they were legally trained. Certainly, judging by their correspondence, they were not at all new to these processes, nor were they phased in any way by the personalities that they were encountering or the work that they were undertaking. So they'd rock up to Parliament, put in the recognisance, you know, make an appearance, it's... it's it's, it's just part of their work, part of, their, of what they're doing. So although it's not immediately obvious to what extent these figures influence events or the angle from which the case was approached, there are strong hints that they may be very important, having knowledge and experience of the legal systems, of both legal systems and with connections with lawyers and clients in Ireland and also dealing with the, Engl the English side of the industry as well. Now, indeed, it's one of the curiosities of this topic that it's chiefly English barristers that are working the Irish cases at the bar of the House. I've come across just one reference to what they term Irish rules of equity um, in, the, in the English House of Lords. Now, whilst we know that the common law is the same across both kingdoms, even if the history of its implementation was very different, the statement in the English House of Lords about Irish rules of equity might just suggest, and it's just a might at this stage, might just suggest that Irish equity um, developed at a different pace or in a different fashion in Ireland than it did in the imperial mother country, as, you know, as, a, as far as the law goes at least. This raises the most interesting question as to whether those aforementioned English barristers, the guys I have up there, are aware of the apparent nuances of Irish equity and whether they bring this into play into their hearings. I suspect they may not, but I was kind of curious to, to dig to see if they do. Uh, it's not a question I'm capable of answering just yet, but for me the question is almost as interesting as the answer itself. 
It may be utterly irrelevant at the same time. We must remember that the English peers did not formally relinquish control over decisions until the famous Orvie O'Connell, that's Daniel O'Connell, in 1844, where he takes a writ of error out of the Queen's bench um, for his imprisonment at the time, uh, where the, the peers, the actual bishops and the temporal peers, are making speeches as to whether he's guilty or innocent and whether he should be released from prison or not at this stage. Um, so in the 17th and the 18th centuries, decisions were made by bishops and by lay peers, and some, have had, some may have had some informal legal training or indeed formal legal training, and many may have well have been capable of, um, of understanding the complexity of the issues, but there are no qualifications necessary to act as a jury on these appeals to simply be a member of the House. Uh, so I may be of the opinion that technical details between equity in Ireland and equity in England might just well have been as irrelevant or deemed to be unimportant to the peers that sat in judgment. You know, are they capable of really understanding these intricate cases? A good barrister will make it understandable, of course, just like a good lecturer will be able to explain complex issues to, to first-year undergraduates. But again, whether it, whether it really kind of goes in through the skull is a different story altogether. <laughs> but it may have been just deemed to be unimportant to the peers that sat. And in any case, by its nature... Equity is supposed to give flexibility and elasticity to the law in, in the early modern period. You know, it's, it's there to solve problems that the common law can't. Now, in terms of the cost and pay, costs are occasionally awarded, um, but by no means typically so. They can vary anything from as low as £20, and if the lords are in a mind to hand down exemplary costs, they can go as high as £200, a very substantial sum of money. Although outside the parameters of this talk, there are references, for example, in Ireland in post-1782 when it it, it, it takes back its, or is given back its, its, its judicial competency. Um, there's, there's talk of effectively punishing a litigant for bringing a spurious came, claim to the Supreme Court of the Kingdom, thus effectively taking damages almost from exemplary to punitive, you know, as you understand it, in, for instance, in the US today. And unfortunately, the Lord's Archives do not reveal how costs are awarded. They do have a bill of costs section within their archive, but it really only starts in the 19th century. So I was looking forward to going in, and then you find, ah, oh, it starts in 1840, damn it. But um, only starts in the 19th century. Presumably the successful litigant needed to account for the cost of the legal services that they would have had to pay, and these could surely be considerable, for although the cases in the Lords would rarely take as long as the process would in Chancery case in early modern Ireland, it was effectively going international with your trial, and this brought an inevitable escalation of costs. So this is not just the cost of the lawyers and the English barristers, um, but you'd imagine they will be at least as expensive as their Irish counterparts, probably more so, I would imagine, but also the additional cost of your printing the cases, drawing up the petitions, travelling to London if you choose to attend the hearings, bringing witnesses as well, which can be expensive. I'm sure they want to be fed and housed quite nicely, um, and they frequently did came. And again, like I was saying earlier, why would you bring over the Irish barristers, driving up your costs... Um, and considering just how wealthy many of these barristers become, we can assume it's a fairly substantial amount. I'm still working through all the sources. I, I think I'll be able to figure out what roughly you expect to pay uh, for a case in the Lords. I'm not quite sure yet. Perhaps um, one of my colleagues um, today will be able to tell me. The official records of the House, um, the printed cases or even the law reports, rarely tell us much about the actual performance, the performative skill of the barrister. 
um, in the oral case. And as we know, in fact, the names of counsel um, rarely ever make it into the Lord's journals. None of these names appear in the Lord's journals. So if you read just the journals as your source for information, it's a great source. But for these specific cases, it's, it's lacking in some ways. I found all these from the printed cases um, the names of the council, like I say, really make it into the journals other than in the particular examples, and there they're noticeable by being exceptional. I have found only one case where the main hearing runs into a second day, and it's quite probably the case that the hearings may well have taken several hours, depending on the complexity of the case by hand. I'm sure, considering, again, the complexity, the length of the printed case, argument, counter-argument, rejoinder, all that sort of thing, I expect a case will take several hours. Um, I can't be absolutely sure of that. Um, but what is perhaps most interesting aspect, to me at least, is that there are members of the Commons, and most of, of these characters are MPs. There are members of the Commons, such as Lutwich and others mentioned already in the paper, who speak with such frequency and for such a long number of hours combined that we are left with the distinct proposition that members of the Commons spoke for far longer and far more regularly uh, than most members of the Upper House would have done. Now, there are member, many members of the upper house who virtually never attended and virtually never spoke. Certainly, there are at least some. We know, for example, that Charles II, along with most of the peers, attended to hear lawyers argue over the salacious details of Lady Rue's voracious sexual appetite at her divorce hearings in the 1670s. But generally speaking, cases like these are dull. And trust me, I've read hundreds of them. They're not exciting. Land law, you know, at the best of times, but 18th century stuff is poor. Um, Clive Jones and Steve O'Farrell opined that the overall membership of 162 peers at the end of William III's reign, daily attendance would be at best about 80. Uh, on a day of great political importance or pageantry where you get to put on the nice clothes and you bring the wife along with you, they might rise up to about 120, but sinking to below 20 days on which the bulk of business was legal cases. Private bills, I imagine, are just about as interesting to most members of, of the Lords. Um, so although the House may have been empty to a point, we're still left with the idea that MPs are actually dominating large parts of the time of the House because this jurisdiction uh, of, of, of the law takes up increasing amounts of time in, in a Parliament, you know. So apart from more general statements about individuals' reputation as speakers or, or lawyers, there hasn't been much information in relation to the performance of individuals within the House, just how impressive are they as speakers. Obviously, there are restrictions on reporting the news of the House at this point, as there is for the Commons, but when there are observations or when diarists do write and leave us a record of the Upper House, they rarely speak about the elocutory performances or the legal wit um, that barrister of, of, of the barristers on the Irish cases. So if the qualitative approach doesn't work, the quantitative approach certainly will do, it seems. As was explained to me by a very high-earning barrister, the best barristers are those who are in the most... Uh, and appeared the most in the Supreme Court. Essentially, he tried to explain to me, I don't know if we all need to believe him, but he was very firm on the idea. Essentially, it's a natural selection that those who are chosen time and time again for the big cases are the ones who are the most likely to be successful and to represent their, their clients in the best possible fashion uh, at great expense. And naturally, those who are most able and have the greatest chance of success at this last chance saloon of the law. So whilst we're generally aware of how interaction between the English and the Irish in Ireland directs the course of Irish history, this paper is just a little attempt to tease out some issues and remind ourselves where the interaction between the Irish and the English in England can also be crucial to the fortunes of the litigants who featured in cases heard at Westminster. Sometimes it's over a small parcel of land and it's largely irrelevant to 
to, to history unless you're doing sort of micro-histories. Sometimes these are the big people, there's peers who are arguing over estates with vast swathes of land and very important issues at hand. It's also worthy of note that there's a community over the Irish abroad who are a thriving, wealthy, confident, professional class that are a part of the London social, business and legal scene in the 17th and the 18th century, and that communities of Irish abroad are not always the result of expropriation or religious persecution. But I'll hand over now to my colleagues who will be able to tell you much more about that topic than I ever could. So, thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.